0: Even though we're a couple of minutes, we're a couple of minutes until we're actually supposed to start. If you, This is last week's handout. If you need it, uh, go ahead and take it. If you have last week's, uh, just, just use the one that you had from, from last week going around. I didn't, you know, I get frustrated by that. We get this brilliant new copier, and in the midst of the run this morning, it says to me, um, empty the whole empty the punch container, so, you know... I, where I would find the hole punch container on the new copier, so Barb will have to order a new copier because I did get a hammer and a screwdriver and I tried to find it. So I, you know, I was, but I, where the hole punch container would be, I just. So if you don't have holes punched in, you know that it's because the hole punch container was full, and I was unable to, uh, I was unable to fix it. It was something I was unable to fix last week too. The it jammed it in so so badly I couldn't couldn't fix it. So I. You know, I, anyway, I hope you'll, you'll have one. We're still a couple of minutes till, but uh, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Tell you what, everyone, anybody need one? Raise your hand if you need one. Go ahead and take them if you want, because I won't, I won't hold them after this week. We'll get through this this week, I think. All right. Thank you so much for the help. Let's uh, let's pray and let's go. Last Sunday of the church here, of course, let your lamps be girded. Uh, I'm sorry. Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning. Luke twelve thirty five. And the oddest gospel, you know, you get the gospel for the crucifixion today, that only gets uh, saved, redeemed by the last line. You you wonder why in the world would they do this? And then next week, of course, we start with Advent, which you should you would think would be you know. About the heroes of the you know the Christmas story, but it, it isn't of course. It, it, the first reading for Advent next week is a is the end of I'm coming back and I'll be snatching people away before before they can get killed. I'll snatch them away. It's, it's the two people grinding strangest strangest text for for the end of the church year and for Advent uh, unless you see uh, the full measure of what Christ comes to accomplish. So. You know, hang with it, but it's a strange, strange thing. This is, a, this is a little easier one. Let your loins be girded and your lamps burning, Luke 12. Almighty and everlasting God, who's promised, promised to us a new heaven and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells, we beg you, direct us by your Spirit, that we may watchfully wait for the coming of your Son, and with holy lives go forth to meet him, Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now that is a fascinating prayer for the end of the church here. Because you'll notice that it talks about recreation, a new heaven, new earth, where righteousness dwells. Which is exactly the Leviticus stuff. The question in Leviticus is righteousness. And so we we beg you, direct us the right way, by your Holy Spirit. So that we wait for the coming of your Holy Son. So we live with holy lives and go forth to meet him. The thing that you're really begging for is the thing that's always there in Leviticus. Uh, Has everybody got a sheet? Anybody need a sheet? I'll bring you one, I promise, if you need it. Raise your hand. Okay, great. Can you do that for me? Because I have a little (laughs) aside. Well, I mean, I I extend in the way that President Bush saved his Secret Service man yesterday. You know, uh, it was fascinating, the President, you know, in a bar fight, you know, two weeks after being elected. Did you see it on TV? Oh, you've got to stay up late and watch more TV. They, they, the president came through the door, and the Chilean security closed and left his Secret Service guy behind. He's looking around. I think he had probably a joke to tell or something, and there's nobody there for the punchline. He had to go back and get him in the midst of this. So you see the president wade into this crowd of Chile, Chilean you know, ch- beefy guys. It was great. So international incident. Anyway, uh, Reardon has a call, so we need to talk about that. Um, and it's very easy for me to talk about it when I don't have a call. So I want to talk about that just, just for five minutes, or three, but I can't do three. So, you know, it should have been, an, it is announced in the bulletin, and, you know, it, it was announced by email to the, to the governing board and to, to folk around and, you know, people around. So you, I, just, I just want to talk a little bit about what should happen when a pastor has a call. It's easier to talk about it when it's not your own. Uh, let me first talk about pastors. One is, and I even edited the prayer up that I took to the altar in the early service to make it uh, a bit more proper. You know, in the Lutheran Church, we're sort of hard and fast about not getting any direct intervention of the Spirit. Except, of course, when a pastor has a call. You know, oh, we're a you know, pastor all the time. We, you know, We sort of go on from the pulpit about how you know, you, 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 it's the objective word, and it's in the text, and you, you, you plod through your life, and the Lord blesses what he blesses, and he doesn't bless what he doesn't bless, and here and there, and make your choices, and you know, have your fun, and the Lord will care for you. Except when a pastor has a call, then we all of a sudden, and pastors lapse into this, they start to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, see, we're written that here, and if he says something, see, three weeks from now, just nod along, and whatever he says, nod along. But they, you know, at seminary, this is the one place they teach, well, the Holy Spirit has led me, and I always think to myself... So you can't have a vision, and I can't have a vision, except on the days when I have a call on my hands, then I can have a vision. Well, I mean, that's not very consistent, is it? So here's the thing. This is really the the, the soup to nuts deal of how you take care of a call, which is, somebody says to Reardon, you should come. As I've told you before, a call comes by FedEx, you know? Well, you know you got a call when you have the papers in your hand. Just as an aside, you know, it still happens here occasionally, but, you know, regularly I get requests from people who are not ordained who think they ought to be preaching here. And, you know, Rear, uh, Luther's response always to that was, we'll, we'll start, where's your ordination papers? And then if they got some, you can go on. But otherwise, the conversation has ended. You know, because if you don't have a call, then you don't go do it. Well, so somebody in, somebody in you know, this place in Illinois has said, you know, Reardon is our guy. I'm sure they prayed too. And uh, now, He has to figure out if he's the guy. But you don't do that by way of, you know, sort of expecting the heavens to open and the spirit to drop down on you like a dove. You work with the normal aspects of everyday life. The Lord baptized his brain, and so he should put his baptized brain to the task. Uh, Among the things that baptized brain should engage is what you choose to say or not to say to him. I was striking the first time I had a call here when people were completely dead silent. That was the strangest sort of situation uh, because then of course silence means I know not what you think. If you're silent through his call, he'll know not what you think either. So if you have a good word in any direction, you should give that, but you need to make sure that it's a good word, that it is not a word of pique nor a word uh, of indulgence you know you, you, you sort of put your what a pastor tries to figure out is where the Lord can have the best use of him the question is where do I fit you know where can the Lord given what I've got at this particular point in my life because I'm not the person I was five years ago and I'm not the person I'll be in five years the question is at this particular point in my life where is it the Lord can have the best use of me and this is not unlike what many of you face especially in an era when you know most people are going to have four or five different jobs So you know he needs to think in that way, and you can aid him in that thinking. You aid him in a positive way by saying, "You seem particularly good at this," or um, "This is why we would particularly need you," or "Here's a place where you could particularly." But but you need you you can only say that if you can go with a pure heart. You may not manipulate the process. Okay, so if you have a clear-headed, you know, helpful word, then speak and speak directly to him. Uh, I'll just say, in my own engagement as pastor, uh, for, with responsibility for those folk, um, I have already met with him, and I, I offer what I always offer when people have a call, which is, uh, here's a few things to be thinking about, and if you want more, then you should come see me. And then I leave it up to the person whether or not they want more. So that's where I am, uh, people always ask, or I hear you know, secondhand that they've asked, so I sort of give it to you in that sense. That's what. That's what I'm meant to do, which is to try to help him sort out if he has need. So I take two steps, and then if he wants three more, you know, I'm available there uh, for him. As, as should especially the elders and leaders of the congregation be on notice, uh, to, and especially then the people engaged in his department. Uh, they should be on notice to give that sort of help. You just need to be extremely careful in the sort of help you give, and it pretty much all falls under don't manipulate the process. Okay, so there shouldn't be anything greatly mysterious to this, although uh, you know it's not quite the same as um, you know, deciding if you're going to go work for you know for Bear Stearns or Lehman Brothers because uh, you are called passive verb pastors do not put themselves on the market, nor is it easy nor, nor may you say as the congregation well um, you know if that just doesn't doesn't work out to just shop himself it's not the way that's faithfully done. Because when that's done, it allows both sides to neglect the thoughtful Christian engagement by which everybody grows. So, I mean, I've said this from, I said this probably the first day I was here. If you have a horrible pastor, your job is to love him and to be a good pastor. Not to ignore him. Not to bang on him. And not to say pack your bags and move on. Your job, if you have a horrible pastor, is to love him into being a good pastor, best you're able, with all that love means, both law and gospel. In the same way, if a pastor comes to a horrible or a horribly broken congregation, the pastor's job is to love that congregation, you know, into something better. Now, you know, we're all human, things happen, um, lives are difficult, uh, sometimes lives are grand. But you just sort of factor all those things in. The final thing is, is just sort of rule of thumb. It's best for a pastor not to leave when things are bad. It's best for a pastor to leave when things are good. When a pastor leaves at a, at a difficult point, there is some admission of failure in that on all sides. So it's best for a pastor, I suppose the be, maybe the best, best time for a pastor to be going, is when nobody would suspect it. Um, you know, that's, uh, that, that is, and that, that sort of goes to the office, then, that you're not attached to the man. The office of Christ remains. You know, men come and men go, but the office of Christ remains. So you're never sort of attached to the personality. Or you wouldn't come to church. Um, that's why we don't publish the preaching schedule here. Because the Lord is speaking. You know, Does it matter who's preaching? I Many people call, we indulge them, but we don't publish it for that very reason. You, know, you should come because the Lord is going to be here, not because the guy is going to be. So try to factor that all together, and, and, and try to try to put a try to put a good word to him if you have strength, you know. If you don't, then pray for him. And um, rule of thumb for pastors is uh, when you get a call, you know, rough rule of thumb is two weeks is too soon and six weeks is too long. Uh, he did write in his letter to that congregation, which he copied me on, that he would uh, the 14th of December would be a rendering date for him. That's a, that's, a little, you know, that's a little dicey. Or before the 14th, I think, maybe, he said, which gives them a little more flex. But you should just sort of think that through. And um, where you can be of service, then, uh, be of service. But th- there shouldn't be this, this, this dance of kind of opposite poles of a magnet where we all sort of move around and act like nothing is happening. Something is happening. But the other side is, is the Lord blesses whatever happens. Is that okay? Any questions about any of that? It's easier to be able to do it when I'm not engaged by it, so I just sort of give you that outside you know, sort of way of engaging that. And you should uh, you know, it's a holiday weekend, and people are traveling this weekend and next, it's odd. Um, you should be um, you need this one, actually. Uh, you should be, you, know, sort of talking to other people in the same way. All right. OK? Anything else about that? All right, grab your text, let's go. Um, you know, my, my Leviticus, if you can find it, uh, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing. My impulse, you know, we only made it halfway through what we were going to do. My impulse always is to, is to, is to rush, uh, to, to not burden you with, with extra things. And yet, on the other hand, there's, there's so much you ought to be gaining out of this. So I do have, you know, I have a whole, you know, another six pages prepared for you, but I haven't given it to you yet. We'll see how we go. And then we'll do the, 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 the next bit next time. So here's what we're going to do. We'll finish up these days of atonement, which is where we are now. These mandatory days of atonement. But then next we're going to do the day of atonement, big D, Yom Kippur, you know, still celebrated all around by your friends in Israel. Uh, the day of atonement. And we're going to have a go at that, in case I forget to say it, which is in Leviticus 16, either at the end today... Or next week and we need to tie these two things together and they are quite similar but there are some differences and we need to think that through it'll help you understand your Jewish friends but it should also help you understand what it is that you're up to every time you come to church so you should have a thing in your hands that says Leviticus 4 atonement in the blood via blood okay 1114 is the date so point one um, in the last few weeks we've seen that some some of the offerings were voluntary those primarily fell under additional pastoral care. And I tried to liken them to, you know, when you come for private absolution or when you have a capital campaign, which is above and beyond your normal stewardship. These are, these are the extras. And isn't it great that the Lord provides the extras? So we, we sort of had a look at those. But then we saw that there are some times when things get so broken that the Lord mandates. He actually says, you need to do this. And my question was, can you understand that as a gift? Can you see that when the Lord says, You can't fix this, and I'm going to have to do something, can you see that as a gift? And I tried to liken it in the way that you go to the doctor with a, you know, you've got chronic pain or you've got an illness, that frankly, there's nothing in your medicine cabinet that's going to fix it. And the doctor says, I can fix it, but th- it's going to take this kind of work. So that's what, and can you hear that as a gift? Can you hear the Lord saying to you, "I love you so much; I want to make it right." Three, I tried to also then try to give you a, a, a firm sense of how polluting sin is, how how, uh, and not just polluting but contagious, how how thoroughgoing, you know, sin is. And I, it's been interesting to watch. You know, it's it's it's, 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 it's strange. <laughs> I mean, one of the, I get the benefit of all the things that you do. It's kind of a nice thing. When people come for private absolution, first thing in the morning, it's, it's just a great, I'll just say it's a, great, it's a great perk for me that they come to private absolution because I get it. I get it too. One of the things, I've, I've thought, often thought that being a pastor is just like taking one long exam, you know, you, 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 sort of, you sort of pray to be a good Christian, then the Lord makes you a pastor. And you think that was a, that was not fair. You know, that <laughs> uh, wasn't what I was expecting. So, but but I do say that there are some. You know, there are some perks here, which is one of the one of the interesting things is to watch the interplay in the congregation. You can you can see on a broad level when people genu- genuinely genuinely care for each other and live in forgiveness how you know it really is true that a rising tide lifts all boats you can see that and you can also see you know in the congregations i've been in and then ones other ones i've observed from you know a little farther away you can see how uh, insidious sin is and how it sort of when it works its way through the capillaries of a congregation and sort of just destroys the place. You, you, you really do see how, how polluting it is. I mean, there's this, corruption is a great word for it. There's this great word for it. Or possession, demon possession is just the right word. You know, that is just the right word for what happens to, to, to people in you know, either direction. So I just, I just, you know, I hope that you'll glom onto that too, that you'll see how thoroughgoing both grace can be and sin can be. You know, and how it always hangs in the balance. It's it's always hanging in the balance. The church is only just one generation from being absolutely positively dead. If you don't do it, the church is dead. If everybody in church this morning doesn't do it, in one generation, the church is dead. It's always just one generation from extinction. I mean, if we don't pass it on in our generation, there will be no church. It's very interesting how much much, uh, the Lord depends on you. So take that for what it is, that, that both sin is, is, is a thoroughgoing corruption, but also grace is really a, an overwhelming, uh, a overwhelming joy. Then the next thing was we, we, we saw how the atonement lies in the blood. And there's no great mystery to this. You take away blood and people die. You know, no blood is death, blood is life. It's just a simple equation that even though we consider ourselves... Not to be in a, you know, we consider ourselves not to be in a barbaric society. Uh, although, you know, barbarism comes in different forms these days. Uh, and I don't just mean people losing their heads, you know, in broad daylight in Iraq. I mean, you know, go, go home and read the front page of the, you know, two or three newspapers today. Barbarism comes in many forms. You know, Be careful. Well, what barbarism needs is redemption. And when things are polluted, it's not just persons. It's places, it's things, it's time. You know, after we do Day of Atonement, the next thing is to do the calendar. Because time is holy, too. And all of that needs to be redeemed. And it was it's fascinating. This is what we did last week, how in Leviticus everything gets redeemed. The priest takes the blood. You know, you wouldn't think you need this, but he, he redeems, as it were, the Holy of Holies. He redeems the holiest place. Why? Because God allows himself to be encroached upon. It's the gospel for today. God lets you kill him. So, see, the Holy of Holies gets polluted. The altar gets polluted. The holy people of Israel gets polluted. Time gets polluted. Everything gets ruined. So what does the Lord do? He gets some blood on the place, right? Sprinkles before the Holy of Holies. Then he gets some blood on the thing, the altar. And then then you can have once that, the, you get some blood on the tabernacle, once that's done, then you can have time back. Morning and evening sacrifice are good. And then people can come to those sacrifices and they can be redeemed. You know, such a thorough way of caring for it. So I'm, I'm sort of at point five then. And I think this is where I want to pick up more thoroughly. And I want to, you know, one, I just want to speak a little bit about this idea of priest and pastor. Which is the really... It's an odd thing that causes people loads of consternation today, it and really, it really shouldn't. And let me see if I can make a couple observations, and if you have some questions about that, we can certainly work on this. But I think it was pretty clear that the priest has a job, and the job is that he's to atone for the people. Now, you realize already that because there are special sacrifices for the priest, in fact, they led with the sacrifice in, in, in Leviticus 4, the priest is not, you know, I mean, the priest is not perfect. I and mean, just like pastors aren't perfect. You know, and I'll just sort of put a little uh, you know, link to what I said about Reardon, you know, so you click that link later if you go talk to him about, and it'll be the link about forgiveness and perfection and what, you, what sort of standards you can hold people to and what you can't. The priests were not perfect, but the priests were put in a position to do a particular thing, the particular thing that they were to do was to constantly make atonement for Israel. That's their job. Their job is to make atonement, morning and evening, regular sacrifices. Uh, Also, if you would come with an optional sacrifice, and particularly on the day of atonement. And I just wanna slip this in for you. There's gonna be about chapter 10 Aaron's boys, you know, get out of line. The Lord kills them. They start goofing around a bit. and you know, they bring unholy fire. And the Lord kills them. And I'm reading through that in chapter 10. Then I get to 16 where I'm reading about the Day of, Aton- Day of Atonement. And then the Lord says to Aaron, Okay, now you're going to come into the mercy seat where I, where I work, where I live. And I wonder what the, you imagine, well, I wonder what the emotion would have been like for Aaron. He's seen his two boys killed because they didn't bring the right fire. And five chapters later, his job is to bring fire in before the Lord. Serious stuff. And we, and we have maybe become, you know, she did a brilliant job today of selecting the, uh, that little thing by Kathleen Norris about how you can hardly tell the difference in our society between uh, pop psychology and what we call church. And I was observing with one of you before the service how I noticed that the Wheaton Park District has a whole page of dumbed-down Buddhism for kids. I don't know if you got your Wheaton Park District thing, but I read through it. There. There's a whole page, which is just sort of, it's Buddhism with the, with, with the fat Buddha chipped off. It's very interesting, especially in this time when people moan such about Christians trying to you know, cross the line, your tax dollars at work. And, of course, it's a difficult thing because your body's connected to your soul. You can't pull them apart, so it never really works, that state in church separation. Uh, so, anyway, that's a little bit of an aside. Uh, I need my soapbox to continue, but I forgot it, so I'm going to just carry on with what we got going here. So, uh, the, 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 church, the, the priest's job is to make atonement. That is not the pastor's job. And you see, this is why we, we get cranky about the sacrifice of the Mass in the Catholic Church. This is why you shouldn't be going... To a Catholic altar and receiving the body and blood of Christ, because there is no more sacrifice. This is a very clear difference between a priest and a pastor. The priest's job is to make atonement. Once Christ has died on the cross, there's no more atonement to be made. The pastor's job, the disciple's job, shifts radically. It's no longer to do things that make atonement. Now the pastor is a delivery boy. The pastor's job is to deliver atonement the pastor's job is to do baptisms. Why? Because God forgives there. The pastor's job is to deliver the body and blood. Why? Because that forgives you. The pastor's job is to speak a, a, a viva vox Christi from the big book. Why? Because that nourishes you. The pastor's job is very different. It doesn't mean that anybody can do it. There are, you know, there are a hundred guys in this congregation who would be great pastors. And frankly, I'm on commission, so see me after the class if you're interested in going. You know, there's a hundred guys who could do it. There's a hundred guys in this congregation who are compassionate, well-spoken, who have the tools. Uh, you know, most of them are business guys. So I just observe. Um, you know, while they all could do it, they don't. Why? They haven't been asked. Just like when they, you know, when they fly to New York City and get in a cab, they don't say to the cabbie, "I have a driver's license. Could you sit in the back? I'll drive." It's not their job to drive. You know, everybody does that when you get in a cab, you don't drive, do you? No, you don't. It's not, it's not been given to you to do. It's this oddness about people saying, well, I should preach because I'm the, the fill-in-the-blank. Had a vision from God, chairman of the congregation, flunked out of seminary after one year. I mean, just pick something. It doesn't have to do with necessarily the quality of the person. Some of the, some of the most evil people I know are theologians. Because, In fact, probably, at least in the top five most evil people I know, theologians populate that list. You know why? Because they're very smart. And they also know just a lot about evil. They've studied it. They've thought about it. And so when it's time for them to be evil, they're incredibly (coughs) good at it. Which is why you should then sort of think about church politics. Just for a moment. And then don't do it too much longer after that. Okay. So, so try, try to understand this difference. The priest's job was to make atonement. The pastor's job is to deliver atonement, but only if you've been asked to do it. Okay. Um, both the priest and the pastor are God's representatives. Why? Because they're particularly good? No, because FedEx dropped a package on Reardon's thing, on, on his doorstep. You'll come be God's rep- representative in our place. I'll have to think that over, he says. Doing what the Lord has given him to do. You always know you've got a bad pastor on your hands when he starts to sing his own song and not the Lord's. Okay? So that's, that's the priest's job. And all of this is done so that you can get forgiven. I mean, what the Lord really wants for you is to be forgiven. Now, you think you don't need all this rigmarole. You know? You think that you can sort of... I saw George Carlin last night going on... You know, his new book is out, but you know, when will Jesus bring the pork chops? I'm sure you've all read it. Like, you know, I kept, I'm flipping through late night. But you know, I've said my prayers. Now it's time to go to bed to prepare to come here this morning. So what do I get? George Carlin pontificating on you know what theology is. So I'm prepared. Uh, <laughs> you know, I just you know you, you think to yourselves. I mean, you you see this stuff, and, and uh, you know, they people get out of their depth so so easily, and and normally they're out of their depth because they don't understand what the church is all about. The church is a way to engage everything that you are, body, soul, and spirit, in a way that not only forgives you, but blesses you, assures you that the, the thing has actually happened. Now, sometimes you're not going to feel it. He was sort of going on last night about how the nuns had made such a big deal out of his first Holy Supper, uh, and he didn't feel anything, so he knew they must be wrong. And then I recall confirmation here where, and not only, it's funny, I gave this speech, and then somebody right behind me, I think it was a layperson, gave it, and then came and told me that they'd given it. And I thought, well done, that's the same speech I just gave, which is, frankly, when the host hits your tongue, um, you may not feel anything. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, it just means that you may not feel it. But it may um, pop out when you're you know, 18 and about to rob a liquor store, you know, or, or 23 and about to move in with your girlfriend, or 40 and about to beat your wife. Or 60 and dying, and you know, um, you're curious about whether you ought to renounce the faith given your pain. It, it, these things are meant as resources for life, and the reason you do them is because you know what? if schlecht is boring today. At least you've got the nice green color, or the stained glass. You can get a bad sermon, but you can't get a bad supper. You know you want to know why you're going to be saved? Because you actually went to the water. You know, somebody held you under until the bubbles came up and then stopped. Maybe we should dunk. I don't know. It'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see what would happen. Anyway, the point of all that is that the Lord wants to release you. But you, you shouldn't have some American notion of freedom. I mean, even in America, we don't... We don't have a notion that you can do anything you want. Because freedom is always bounded, and freedom is bounded in the church as well. Try to understand that you're not creator, you're creature, and you're meant to be free to live within boundaries. You can describe that as prison if you want. But honestly, it's not prison. It is joy. There are some things you shouldn't do: bang your thumb with a hammer. You know. There's just some things that are painful. Some, well, no, I can't tell you that. Well, yeah, well, no, I can't tell you. Someday. For men's retreat, I have, remind me to tell you a story someday. <laughs> uh, I, have, I have a story, but I, I have to be careful. Um, anyway, so this is the bottom of six. What the Lord is really doing is forgiving you, and when you are forgiven, then you're free. Okay? Now, whether you believe it or not, <clears throat> I'm just above seven on your outline. This goes with the prayer that we just prayed to start the day, which is that normal life is meant to be holy. I mean, we prayed, there are about six different ways, whether you realized it or not. In that prayer, what we prayed is that we would be holy. Holy Jesus, send your Holy Spirit to make us a holy people and guide us into holy ways so that we leave this, this year forgiven and enter the new year, you know, following after um, the Holy One that you'll be sending in a couple of weeks at Christmas. I mean, normal life is meant to be holy. That's what is supposed to happen here, and that's what you're supposed to be given to. The opposite of that, this is point seven, is to bear your own sin. This is very difficult. Um, I got a bit of an objection to the to the to the, um, to, the uh, to the to the to, to the little cape and margin comment a few weeks ago. It said hell is full of forgiven sinners. Um, I just want to I just want to tell you why that's true. Because when Jesus died, he died for everybody. Forgiveness is yours. But there are some people who say, I think I'll just do this on my own. What they're really saying is, I'll bear my own sin. This is nothing new. This is in Leviticus. It's right here in Numbers, an unforgiven person. And in Numbers, they actually prescribe it. You know, for us, this would normally be known as excommunication. Uh, you, know, that's a, you know, it'll take another 100 years before that comes back as a, now hear me, as a proper kindness done in the church to show people that they can't go on lying, cheating, stealing, and sinning unrepentantly and still come to the altar. Okay? But it, gets so, it was so misused. It's one of those things that gets so misused that it takes a generation or two just to get it back. Okay, it starts with pastoral care again, which the, our generation has lost. I have opined on that you know, several times before. But you, first you have to have pastoral care that says, you, you, know, you really don't want to you know, slam your thumb in that car door because that really hurts. You know, don't do that. Okay? So the, these are your choices. that the Lord will bear your sin or you'll bear your sin. And there were people, and I give you the text, or even, in, in, it goes to numbers, but remember this is one long piece, where, where somebody just says, I would prefer to bear my own sin. Now, when that happens, because Israel is God's holy people, they actually push people outside. You know what? The place for bearing your own sin is outside the camp, where things are ambiguous to sinful. Okay, But we'd love to have you back. But if you won't live within the freedom that the Lord prescribes, morning and evening sacrifices, come in when you need extra assurance, sitting in sackcloth and ashes on the Day of Atonement. If you won't live with that, then you want to live another way, then go live that way outside the camp. You know, we no longer have in the church the strength you know, to say to anybody almost outside the camp. When we do, it's a great big blow-up. Uh, occasionally we ask people not to commune here when they're in manifest and unrepentant sin. You should just know. I mean, I, this, is, this is something I will say. You should know that the last thing that we want to do is take the supper away from somebody. I mean, the last thing we want to do, you should know that if it is in fact taken away from somebody, it is because they're in manifest and unrepentant sin and we have bent over backwards to have them come back and they won't. You know, it's a way of saying to somebody, if you're going to live that way, then it's, then it's outside the camp. You're outside the camp because frankly, if you get close to what's holy, it'll kill you which is exactly what 1 Corinthians 11 says. Come unrepentant. This is why some of you are weak and some of you have died. It's 1 Corinthians 11:26. 26. Touch the holy thing to your lips without being repentant. You're a dead man. He says, the reason we wouldn't commune people is if we're going to kill them rather than help them. He says, there's nothing too mysterious about this. If you say, I, I, forgive me, the, 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 the one thing we want to say here is you're forgiven. But on the Lord's terms, not on your own. Okay? So an unforgiven unfor- person lives outside the community. An unforgiven nation lives, you know, alone, unprotected. You know, you should think about the Babylonian captivity. Why does the Lord finally let Israel, his chosen people, enter into captivity? Because he just won't listen to them. He says do sacrifices and be forgiven. They, they won't come for forgiveness. He says tithe so we can support the infrastructure of the temple. They won't tithe. He says, don't oppress these foreigners and aliens. They steal like crazy from them. You know, at some point, the Lord, he lets you encroach upon his righteousness so far, but boom, at some point, no farther. So, um, sinners, alone loner in community, bear the inevitable consequences of their sins. Of course, that's not the final thing. Come back, you know. So then I give you, I'm at point eight things you might be listening to. In Leviticus, I know this is tough going. It's partly the reason I just read a little bit to you every time. But next time I would, in preparation for next week, if you would read Leviticus 16. And if you want to take a sheet today and just sort of work through it, you can. Because there's a whole, Leviticus 16 finds its fulfillment in Hebrews. The whole book of Hebrews is about Leviticus 16 and sort of the extended range around it. I'll just tell you a cool thing. You think Leviticus is boring? You know Leviticus 16 is not only the center chapter of Leviticus, there are 36 speeches, it is speech 16. It is also the center chapter of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus number. If you count forward and count back at the same time, you land on Leviticus 16. That is not an accident. That's the way the text was put together, why? Because when they wrote it, they knew you were smart know when you were smart they knew you'd know how to count they knew that when you counted you would realize you know they're shooting up a flare saying what's the center of everything that the Lord has given Leviticus 16 the day of atonement (coughs) center bit it's the center bit of Leviticus it's the center bit of Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy isn't that fascinating they knew you were coming they loved you so things you gotta you know your takeaways this is a point eight you know, the pervasive power of sin, that it doesn't just infect persons. You know, you can't sin alone. When you're polluted, you're contagious. You know know this from families. You know this from work. You know this from, you know, congregations. You know this from cities. You can just see this. You infect persons, space, things, ritual, time. You know, ritual, like things like having a judge and a jury. You, know, you you listen around the world, how people are trying to establish, uh, you, you know, you read Russian literature. We sent Ben off this morning to Russia. I hope you wave goodbye to him. He last was on a plane when he was seven. Is that right? So, well, he's fully prepared then to land in St. <laughs> Petersburg, you know, 13 hours from now. It's going to be great. <laughs> really it is. If his mom's here, it's going to be great. Just pat her on the back when you see her. It's going to be great. Just be careful what you eat. What is that? Okay, so uh, grill that for me, would you? It's a bone. It doesn't grill up. Okay, never mind. Anyway, you know the pervasive places where you know you read you read you know the Russian you know sort of 20th century Russian literature. the craziness of not having you know reason, a judge, a jury, an appeal, any objective truth. Boom. This sin affects everything. And secondly, I give you this, the diligence of self-examination. I mean, this just, it was not taught to me. I bet it was not taught to you. I bet not unless you're over 60 or 70. You weren't taught the part of the catechism, except with sort of a wink and a nod about examining yourself before you come to the supper. Was, we, we, we sort of give it, we're trying, to, we're trying to lure you into it. A few weeks ago, that was, there was that C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about, uh, I think Reardon ran it, it was about... Uh, you know, he said, you shouldn't say to yourself, um, you know, when, you're, when, you, when your senses are appealed to, you, you shouldn't say to yourself, oh, won't I enjoy this? Uh, he talked about a banquet, or I think he talked about sex in another place. He said, no, you, sh- you should realize that you're on the edge of the deadly sin known as gluttony. You should make yourself aware of that, and you should tread carefully. See? We've hardly ever learned that, but it's so important for us. And if we did that, could we bear it? You know, and, one of the, and one of the ways it goes most wrong is you start to see it in everybody else. One of the frightening things of getting a really good read on the Ten Commandments is, it's so easy for me to see it in you. And it's very difficult to see it in me. So this, this rigorous self-examination, individually and as a community. I think I told you that the great prayer, in the, I've said it to you several times, the great prayer in the Episcopal Church probably prayed pray today probably a colic for this day, end of the church year, where the priest will pray forgiveness for all the false doctrine he's taught during the year. That's a good prayer. We should, we should steal that one and use it. So it's expressed in this vigilance and this reflection, this need for, that we could actually say that we were wrong, which hardly anybody can say anymore. We will admit that we're bent a little bit, or we haven't used our potential to their full, to, its full, you know, to, its, to its full expression. You know, read confessions. If people don't use a confession in a book when you travel around, if you travel these next couple, read the confession. See whether it holds up to "I'm sinful in thought, word, and deed," by what we've, what, what I've, what I've, what I've done and left undone, by nature and in my actions. See if confessions hold up to that. I know people don't want to hear it anymore. I, I mean, I know. It doesn't make it wrong. It just means that people don't want to hear it anymore. People don't want to hear a lot of things. But you have the chance to be different. Because you notice there is, this is point three here, there is the ability for you to change. The Lord's institution, the gift, part of the gift is that you can change. Part of the gift is you don't have to go on sinning. I mean, when Jesus says in John 8 to that woman, caught in adultery, anybody condemn you? No, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more, or you're free not to sin, or you're free to change, or you're let loose. Have fun. Boom. That is great stuff. Um, the frequency of forgiveness, I'm going to do the next bit, but I also want to give you then the necessity of a bounded, disciplined, faithful, confessing, rhythmic life. And I wonder, as the, in, the, in the way that when I started, you can hear mandatory If you don't take this horrible chemotherapy, then you'll die for sure. It's mandatory but hopeful. Can you hear this as mandatory and hopeful? Can you hear necessity as a gospel word? If you don't say your prayers, if you don't read your text, you know, if you don't give, if you aren't engaged in acts of mercy, which is primarily what Jesus was about, you know, um, you haven't, you haven't, you haven't quite, quite figured it out. I, I, in my, you know, musings about various things in a Bible study in the past few weeks, I, I mused too close to the bone for some people when I said that um, in the days after election, the poor would be off the radar screen now. And and people took that. That was taken by a few folk as a pro carry comment uh, on the president. I can assure you that the last thing you'll ever hear from me is how I voted, or how you should vote. My observation was that the poor who need desperately to have acts of mercy done are largely ignored in the buffer between elections. I'm not making any sort of statement about up from your own bootstraps, what your tax rate should be. I'm not making any about what programs or whether every child left behind was fully funded or not. I'm not making any argument about any of that, okay? All I'm saying is is that the poor were on Jesus' radar screen and they ought to be on your radar screen. And frankly, most people don't pay much attention unless they have, can have some good use of the poor. Okay? So that leaves the church loving the poor even when you're not gonna get anything out of it. You get it? It's not a political statement. It's a statement about what Jesus thinks is important. Jesus thinks it's important that poor people are cared for, that hungry people get fed. I mean, we're gonna read it in Isaiah it's so Jesus' first sermon. This is what I came to do. Release people. And care for people in jail. It's just, just, that's, not, that's not political commentary. That's spiritual commentary. How you think it might best work out, go vote. And be grateful that you live in a place where you can. But you know what? You still have responsibilities post-election. Yeah, I was just going to just kind of blitz right through this today and uh, get onto the next one, too, that's six pages long. I'm, yeah, I'm right where I want to be. <clears throat> I'll give you one more thing under nine. This is just a cool thing. Um, you know, there's all this sprinkling, you know, and rubbing of blood and this tactile stuff. And, you know, it's got color and it feels and it smells and it smells worse the next day. I just think it's fascinating that in Isaiah 52, 15, this is the last thing I'll say, this is the top of number nine, that the same word that's used for when the priest goes into the Holy of Holies and dips his finger and sprinkles seven times, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven days of creation, seven days of completion, seven days of perfection, when he goes in to perfect the Holy of Holies, I just think that's fascinating That is it exactly the same word used to talk about the suffering servant You know, Isaiah 53 is the great suffering servant text. Isaiah 52, 15, he, the suffering servant, the Christ, what's he going to do when he gets here? Christ shall sprinkle many peoples. That is fascinating. What the priest does to the Holy of Holies, to the altar, to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that's what the Christ is going to do to you. That's why he comes to die. He comes to sprinkle you. And you should say to yourself, I mean, all your Holy Supper bells should be going off at that point. When it hits you, you're hallowed. You're restored for good use. You're holy again. You can carry on. You're free. You're bounded, but make good use of what you've been given. So you can sort of spin through this. Um, read for next week about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. You know, and here's a little, here's for, for bonus credit and I know that this will be true for some of you. This would be very helpful for me too. For bonus credit, and remind me that I signed this, otherwise no gold stars will go out. Um, if you have Jewish friends that you're comfortable talking to, if you have Jewish friends that you're comfortable talking to who know some stuff, ask them, just ask them the open question. What's that day of atonement all about? What do you do? What's expected? You know, what's the rabbi aiming at? Just ask them what, what it is what, it, what is that day all about? We should just listen to them. Let them tell you what it's about. My guess is, here's my guess. My guess is, if you talk to them, um, people who are observant and paying attention, or maybe even people who are not, um, my guess is that they will talk about not only about um, what it is that they've done wrong. They'll talk spectacularly and at length, I think, about what it is that they must do to make it right with the Lord, which you then would hear as the law, not the gospel. Rather than the passive verb of the Lord doing it to them, there will be this talk of what they must do, which, of course, is the same problem the church had in the Middle Ages—that it got to be all about what they must do. But I, 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 I sort of—I don't want to, you know, tint the water. You, you sort of, you sort of ask them and see what they say. And next week we'll come back to that. And remember, as you read that, that's the center of the entire Pentateuch. That is the middle point, so what's that all about? And the answer, of course, is that's Christ. That's Christ in Leviticus 16. In Hebrews, I've given you the text at the end to show you that, okay? Let's pray, thanks for the day, and uh, end of the church here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses,